0: Podcast one production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast in which every week we choose a subject, a situation, something that is happening somewhere in the world, and we break it down for you. Something along the lines of international relations. Dr. Keith Souter, the man on this subject matters, all of them, you could ask this man anything about anything in the world in terms of history or current politics and he would know where it's happened, how it's happened, the history behind it. You've got such a rich knowledge, Keith, in this area. Two or three PhDs? Three PhDs. Yes, Yeah, has been a commentator (laughs) in Australian media for decades now as well on these subject matters. And this is a podcast, again, in which we choose a subject and we go through it every week and you and I have worked together in television for quite a few years as well. This week we're talking about Hiroshima. I know that's not the way to pronounce it, but there's so many different variations. Hiroshima. Yep. What do you say, Keith?
1: I just say Hiroshima.
0: Okay. So today, you know, obviously an anniversary last week of the bombing of Hiroshima in the Second World War, the ending of the Second World War, and a lot of information has come to light.
1: Yeah. So the book that I've been reading um, has just been published. uh, It's written by Leslie Bloom, and it's called Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up, and the reporter who revealed it to the world. Now, what I found interesting about the book, two things. One, is what it actually says about the Hiroshima bombing. And that we've, as you've mentioned, we've just been commemorating the 75th anniversary of the bombing. But also, it's a story about how the media operates. So you and I are, are met- veterans of the media, and we know the stories don't fall out of the sky, and they have to be constructed. Now, President Trump has talked about fake news. In a sense, all news is fake news in the sense that it is fabricated that you have to assemble information. And so you can end up with journalists looking at the same event but taking out different interpretations. One might be writing for a left-wing newspaper. One will be writing for a right-wing. So they know their audiences Mm -hmm. and they're shaping the story to fit their audiences. So that in itself is a degree of faking or fabrication, if you like. So what I like about the book is, first of all, what it tells us about Hiroshima and then, secondly, what it says about the art of of journalism and the way that, as journalists, we have to put stories together. So just saying a little about Hiroshima. So in the 1930s, there was speculation that it would be possible to break up an atom and unleash a huge amount of nuclear energy. Albert Einstein had speculated on that, although he didn't think it could actually be achieved, but he said it was theoretically possible. There were fears when the outbreak of World War II occurred that the Germans were already well advanced on this. A lot of the good thinking on nuclear physics was coming out of Germany. So the British and the Americans worked together on what British called tube alloys, what the Americans called the Manhattan Project. One of the biggest engineering projects really of the 20th century, top secret. So the vice president of the day in the United States had no idea what was going on. And we're still continuing to learn information. Only in the last few days, for example, I've found out about the fact that the Royal Air Force the British Air Force, were being trained to also drop these bombs. The Americans did not have an aircraft good enough to do the the bombing, whereas the Avro Lancaster, which is this giant war horse of the sky, could carry it but didn't have enough range. So it's interesting, the British and the Americans were in a race to see who was actually going to produce the best plane to hit Hiroshima. The Americans were outraged because this is an American bomb. It's going to be dropped by an American plane with American crew. We don't want those wretched limeys coming in and taking the glory. So we've, this is the, the, the story of the Black Lancasters. Lancasters have only now come out in the last few days. So we're still learning about what occurred 75 years ago. Um, in the end, of course, it was an American crew. They could develop an, an, a plane appropriately for the job. So they went ahead, this race with the German scientists concerned about nuclear weapons. In May of 1945, the uh, Germans had surrendered, so at least the war in Europe was ending. The Americans, however, and the British and others, including Australians, the international team effort, continued to do the research and then had the first testing of a, a an atomic device in July of 1945, because the war against Japan was still going on. And so it, it now looked likely that they would need a nuclear bomb of some sort or an atomic bomb to be able to drop on Japan. OK, the Germans were out of the war, but the the Japanese were putting up a good struggle. Now, objectively speaking, the Japanese had started to lose World War Two by at least 1943, if not 1942. In other words, they attacked Pearl Harbour on December, no, December 7, 1941. You know, that that was their hour of glory, from here on in, it was going to be, uh, in retrospect, you know, if you were in Australia at the time, you didn't know this, but it's only by looking back we can see that the Japanese were, were really in a very bad way quite early on, but they were determined to fight on. Towards the end of the war, they developed what were called the kamikaze pilots, divine wind. So these were men who were trained to make one journey. They were told when they took off, they were not allowed to return to Japan. They had to crash their plane into a, an Allied warship in the Pacific, and they, they did a huge amount of damage. A lot of them were engaged, so their weddings took place at the moment they died. So the pilot was off trying to destroy a warship. Meanwhile, his bride, with a photograph carried by his father, a photograph of him, would have a marriage ceremony. So these women became brides and widows at the same time,
0: so this is like this generation's version, or like that generation's version of suicide bombers, and those Absolutely. that went over there to marry them, from you know. Yep. <laughs> so something. what is
1: happening? So the problem, as any soldier will tell you, that most soldiers want to be around for the victory celebrations. So if necessary, they will surrender. The Japanese took surrender as a humiliation, and they were going to fight to the last civilian. So that was the problem which the Allies confronted, that the Japanese clearly were losing the war. There was no hope they could ever win, but they were going to take as many Westerners as they could with them. And so the decision, therefore, was made to go ahead with this um, bombing, uh, August the 6th uh, at Hiroshima, August 9, three days later at Nagasaki. And uh, both cities were totally destroyed. Continuing debate about the total number of people who were killed, Maybe 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 at Hiroshima. We, we don't know for sure and never will know. So that's the background to the book. So top secret event when Harry Truman suddenly became president of the United States following the death of President Roosevelt. He um, suddenly found himself uh, having to get his head around this whole project. He, no one had told him that it was underway. So he then had to make the decision and he went ahead. So the the bombing took place. And that forced the Japanese to surrender. There's a continuing debate that goes on. Was it the atomic bombs or was it perhaps the prospect that the Russians were going to get involved? The Russians had been neutral during World War II with Japan. The Russians had been fighting the Germans, but they they didn't want to fight. The Russians and the Japanese did not want to fight. So they were neutral towards each other. But Russia had said following the defeat of Germany, they would declare war on Japan three months later because... It would take three months to move their troops across, right? So the Allies were going to move theirs all the way around Africa into the Pacific or around the Americas into the Pacific. So we would be looking at a land invasion of Japan somewhere in the late 1945, which is a bad time to invade because it's the winter. And the Russians were then building their forces up to move east to attack Japan as well. And the Japanese surrendered. Now, the Americans would say it's because we dropped the bomb. The Russians would say no. The Japanese knew how bad the Russians could be. So they decided that they would surrender rather than have the Russian hordes overrun them and then divide up Japan in the way that, of course, Germany got divided. So the Japanese, one way or another, surrendered. And the Americans then had this problem of how do they deal with Hiroshima? They had no idea as to how much damage would be done. Now, because it's never been done before, they'd had this test in New Mexico, they could see it was very explosive they had no idea how difficult it was going to be. So their immediate reaction when they dropped the bomb is, oh, dear.
0: I think it was probably a little stronger than that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) How do we keep all this rather quiet? This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking about Hiroshima because it was an anniversary. Which anniversary was it last week? August
1: the 6th. That's right.
0: 1945. Um, yeah, a significant one. And all these new details have come out about what happened on that day and the build-up to it and then the Russians now, you know, suggesting that they were going to get involved with Second World War yeah. against Japan at some stage after the Germans had been defeated. So there's all this new information coming out. Keith, we're just talking about dropping that bomb on Hiroshima and the Americans not knowing what the extent of the damage would be because I just had never done it before. Do you think that? Uh, well, first of all, how many people died? Well, that's part of the problem.
1: You know, some people have said a hundred thousand could be two hundred thousand. We just don't know for sure. And don't forget, all the government records also went up and was converted to dust as well. I so. mean, can
0: you imagine if a government did that in this day and age? <laughs> yeah. Like, really, yeah. B- bombed a whole city in a whole and another city country? Just
1: disappeared. So this is why Hiroshima represents the era of a new uh, beginning in the era of warfare because of the explosive capacity. And I've got to say, these nuclear weapons that were dropped, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, would not now be included in disarmament negotiations because they're seen as too small. <laughs> but at the time, they demolished an entire city. So the Americans responded by a news blackout. Now, an Australian journalist by name of Wilfred Burchett got into Hiroshima and filed this story about the atomic plague. In other words, he wrote about not only the people who were killed at that moment of explosion, but also this mysterious illness that people, we now know it as radiation sickness, uh, but uh, all these people who were just falling sick. And um, he called it the atomic plague. The Americans were outraged. So he was removed from Hiroshima. His camera was confiscated, but he had the story out in the Daily Express, which was a leading Um, British newspaper at that time. And so the Americans said, look, until we work out exactly what our spin will be, because on the one hand, they want to be able to boast that they'd created so much destruction to force the Japanese into surrender. At the same time, Hiroshima was basically a city of civilians. Do they they want to boast about killing, you know, particularly when you've got the war crimes tribunals occurring after World War II, do they want to boast about how many civilians they've killed? So... They needed time to think. They, they put, in effect, um, a news blackout on Hiroshima. And I think a lot of people were saying, well, look, thank God the war's over. We don't need to have too much information about what went on in Hiroshima. Let's now concentrate on rebuilding America. And this is where this writer, John Hershey, comes into play. So John Hershey, you might say, was a sort of a traditional Yankee aristocrat, born in China of... Um, Christian missionary parents with roots going back into New England for centuries, you know, very much part of the elite, went to Yale, did his postgraduate work at the University of Cambridge, England, Uh, was highly regarded young journalist in World War II, received uh, commendations for bravery for rescuing American naval personnel. So he was really the golden boy of American journalism and knew everyone and was being groomed for a senior position at Time magazine. But instead, he decided he'd really like to become a writer. Uh, He'd already written one novel, which was well-received, and was intrigued, you know, what happened at Hiroshima? So we're now in 1946, so we've gone a year later. And Hershey is wanting to know what actually did happen in Hiroshima. Remember this broadly, this news blackout? The Japanese, I might say, contributed to that blackout. The the, the people who survived, Hibishka, were very badly treated. They received no government pension for about a decade after the attack. So if you had survived, don't go to the government expecting medical assistance. It's an appalling story. So the Japanese wanted to forget about it. The Americans, I say, didn't know whether to boast or just keep quiet about it. And so Hirsch decided to just go to Hiroshima and find out exactly what happened. And this is where we come, I think, to where we talk about the manufacturing of news. If I'd gone to Hiroshima at that time, the sort of book I would have written or the article that I would have written would have been talking about, you know, the size of the bomb, the amount of damage done, the population of Hiroshima, et cetera, all the technical stuff. And Hirsch came up with a very different approach. He had read a book about a uh, a tragedy uh, with a, a bridge in Latin America. And the author of that story had focused on the victims rather than all the big stuff, you know, the engineering stuff, which I would have gone for. You know, he just focused on the people. And so Hirsch decided he would tell the story of Hiroshima through the lives of six people. It became very It's a very interesting approach that he adopted. But it's so, probably
0: the most relatable for most people because exactly. people love human stories.
1: Spot on. That was exactly it. This is why his article in the magazine The New Yorker, uh, is regarded as one of the most important journalistic pieces ever written in American history. So he he compiled the story. He didn't um, get himself confiscated or punished by General MacArthur and his troops who wanted to keep a security blanket over Hiroshima. Got back to New York, worked with a senior team who wouldn't even tell their own journalists what they were doing. Uh, the New Yorker magazine is um, for the sophisticated cosmopolitan when it was set up just at the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, 100 years ago, it was targeted at the new rich, the sophisticated people of New York. They weren't interested in having the magazine read by by the ordinary person in the middle of America. He didn't want that. He wanted to have only sophisticated people who liked sophisticated humour, cartoons, crossword puzzles, reviews of wine and theatre and that sort of thing. But it's quite bizarre that it should come out in that magazine. I would have gone for The Atlantic, which is one that we use all the time because it is, in my view, the best current affairs magazine out. But instead they put it into The New Yorker, um, working in top secret. As I say, the fellow journalists were not told that their material was not going to be used, and instead the edition was given over to a traditional New Yorker cover, very light-hearted sort of cover. But then you start to read it, and it's 30,000 words without pictures on Hiroshima. So, it just uh, the New Yorker has dined out on this ever since. This is uh, part of their history. The uh, magazine sold out in two hours. It was selling for fifteen cents. A few weeks later, you could get a secondhand copy for six dollars. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it is. It was the publishing sensation.
0: Um, and what were the people in it? What what did it talk about? What it kind talked of about six
1: ordinary Japanese people, some of whom managed to last well into the 70s and 80s, and what it was like to be involved in that first uh, atomic strike. And um, as you say, it was a human interest story. The left criticised it because they said, you don't make any comment about the politics behind it. Was this a good decision or a bad decision? This is just a human interest story. So the hardline left-wing journalists didn't like it very much. But it is interesting that uh, it was, for the reason that you said, it was accessible. It was something which ordinary people could relate to. And the reason for its significance is that people suddenly realised that the development of nuclear weapons represented a new era in warfare, the amount of destruction that could be caused by one bomb. And this uh, obviously then helped trigger the anti-nuclear movement, which continues to this day. You know, we're still working on now a new nuclear treaty uh trying to get australia to ratify it let alone the americans the russians (laughs) and the british because that nuclear treaty is our best chance against our worst weapon and this was a movement that was in a sense triggered by hershey's article in 1946 people realizing golly we've just got to do something about these wretched nuclear weapons otherwise we're going to lose our own lives
0: It's fascinating stuff. So what have we learned from it? I mean, no one's dropped one since,
1: have they? That's exactly it. And I think some people have heeded the warning. And I've got to say, when I look back at the speeches I used to give 50 years ago on nuclear weapons, by the year 2000, we were predicting 30 countries would have nuclear weapons, including Australia, Canada and Sweden. In fact, it's not nearly that bad as some of us were predicting. But nonetheless, there is a, a gradual movement towards other countries acquiring nuclear weapons, including North Korea. Remember North Korea is one that... know one of the poorest countries in the world
0: but that's all they care about it would seem
1: and they've got their nuclear weapons (sighs) and you've got the Americans and the Russians particularly the Americans behaving irresponsibly the treaties that were negotiated around the time of the ending of the Cold War they're gradually lapsing so it is it's still a very serious situation that we're in and I think that's why it's valuable for us to remember what happened in Hiroshima 75 years ago
0: This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.